The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells Chapter 4 The Cylinder Opens Hello and welcome to another edition of Public Domain Playhouse. We bring you a cross between an ebook experience and a podcast experience by developing teleplays of the great works of fiction from antiquity. Due to the nature of the War of the Worlds and where it falls in place in literary history, it's important to note that this was relative to a a trend in literature called invasion literature. Between 1871 and 1914, over 60 works of fiction for adult readers were described um, invasions of Great Britain, and these were published as seminal works like The Battle of Dorking by George Tompkins Chesney, an army officer. The book portrays a surprise German attack, with a landing on the south coast of England made possible by the distraction of the Royal Navy in colonial patrols and the army in an Irish insurrection. The German army makes a short work of the English militia and they rapidly march to London. The story was published in Blackwood's magazine in May 1871 and was so popular that it was reprinted a month later as a pamphlet which sold 80,000 copies. The appearance of this literature reflected the increasing feeling of anxiety and insecurity as international tensions between European imperial powers escalated towards the outbreak of the First World War. Across the decades, the nationality of the invaders tended to vary in these stories according to the most acutely perceived threat at the time. In the 1870s, the Germans were the most common invaders. Towards the end of the 19th century, a period of strain on Anglo-French relations and the signing of a treaty between France and Russia caused the French to become the more common menace. There are a number of plot similarities between Wells's book and the Battle of Dorking. In both those books, a ruthless enemy makes a devastating surprise attack with the British armed forces helpless to stop its relentless advance, and both of these stories involve the destruction of, these, uh, of the home country of southern England. However, War of the Worlds transcends the typical fascination with invasion literature with European politics. The suitability of contemporary military technology to deal with the armed forces of other nations and international disputes with its introduction of an alien adversary. So although much of the invasion literature may have been less sophisticated and visionary than Wells' novel, it was a useful, familiar genre to support the publication's success of this piece, attracting readers used to such tales. It may have also proved an important foundation for Wells' ideas later on when he became a, a devout socialist, as he had never seen or fought in a war. So let's get on with Chapter 4, The Cylinder Opens. I wonder what's going to happen. What's going to come out of that cylinder? Will it be whipped cream? Will it be ice cream? We don't know, but we're waiting to see. What else could come out of a cylinder? Shot from a giant cannon buried deep in the heart of Mars. Let's find out. <clears throat> 
Chapter 4 The Cylinder Opens When I returned to the common, the sun was setting. Scattered groups were hurrying in from the direction of Woking, and one or two persons were returning. The crowd about the pit had increased, and stood out black against the lemon-yellow of the sky. A couple hundred people, perhaps. There were raised voices, and some sort of struggle appeared to be going on about the pit. Strange imaginings passed through my mind. As I drew nearer, I heard Stent's voice. Keep back! Keep back! A boy came running to him. It's a moving, he said to me as he passed. A screwing, and a screwing out. I don't like it. I'm going home, I am. I went on to the crowd. There were really... I should think two or three hundred people elbowing and jostling one another, and one or two ladies there being by no means the least active. He's fallen in the pit, cried someone. Keep back, said several. The crowd swayed a little, and I elbowed my way through. Everyone seemed greatly excited. I heard a peculiar humming sound from the pit. I say, said Ogilvy. Help keep these idiots back. We don't know what's in that confounded thing, you know? I saw a young man, a shop assistant, in Woking, and I believe he was standing on the cylinder and trying to scramble out of the hole again. The crowd had pushed him in. The end of the cylinder was being screwed out from within. Nearly two feet of shining screw projected. Somebody blundered against me, and I nearly missed being pitched onto the top of the screw. I turned, and as I did so, the screw must have come out, for the lid of the cylinder fell upon the gravel with a ringing concussion. I stuck my elbow into the person behind me and turned my head towards the thing again. For a moment, that circular cavity seemed perfectly black. I had the sunset in my eyes. I think everyone expected to see a man emerge, possibly something a little unlike us terrestrial men, but in all essentials, a man. I know I did. But looking, I presently saw something stirring within the shadow, grayish billowy movements, one above another, and then two luminous disks, like eyes. Then something resembling a little gray snake about the thickness of a walking snake coiled up out of the writhing middle and wriggled in the air towards me, and then another. A sudden chill came over me. There was a loud shriek from a woman behind. I half turned, keeping my eyes fixed upon the cylinder still from which other tentacles were now projecting and began pushing my way back from the edge of the pit. I saw astonishment giving place to horror on the faces of people about me. I heard inarticulate exclamations on all sides. There was a general movement backwards. I saw the shopman struggling still on the edge of the pit. I found myself alone and saw people on the other side of the pit running off, stent among them. I looked again at the cylinder. An ungovernable terror gripped me. I stood petrified and staring. A big, grayish, rounded bulk, the size perhaps of a bear, was rising slowly and painfully out of the cylinder. As it bulged up and caught the light, it glistened like wet leather. 
two large, dark-colored eyes were regarding me steadfastly. The mass that framed them, the head of the thing, was rounded and had, one might say, a face. There was a mouth under the eyes, the lipless brim of which quivered and panted and dropped saliva. The whole creature heaved and pulsated convulsively. A lank tentacle appendage gripped the edge of the cylinder. Another swayed in the air. Those who have never seen a living Martian can scarcely imagine the strange horror of its appearance. <laughs> the peculiar V-shaped mouth with its pointed upper lip, the absence of brow ridges, the absence of a chin beneath the wedge-like lower lip, the incessant quivering of this mouth, the gorging groups of tentacles, the tumultuous breathing of the lungs in a strange atmosphere, the evident heaviness and painfulness of movement due to the greater gravitational energy of the Earth. Above all, the extraordinary intensity of the immense eyes were at once vital, intense, inhuman, crippled, and monstrous. There was something fungoid in the oily brown skin, something in the clumsy deliberation of the tedious movements unspeakably nasty. Even at this first encounter, this first glimpse, I was overcome with disgust and dread. Suddenly, the monster vanished. It had toppled over the brim of the cylinder and fallen into the pit, with a thud like the fall of a great mass of leather. I heard it give a peculiar, thick cry, and forthwith... Another of these creatures appeared darkly in the deep shadow of the aperture. I turned, and, running madly, made for the first group of trees, perhaps a hundred yards away. But I ran slantingly and stumbling, for I could not avert my face from these things. There, among some young pine trees and firs bushes, I stopped, panting, and waited further developments. The common round in the sand pits was dotted with people, standing like myself, in half-fascinated terror, staring at these creatures, or rather, at the heaped gravel at the edge of the pit in which they lay. And then, with a renewed horror, I saw a round, black object bobbing up and down on the edge of the pit. It was the head of the shopman who had fallen in, but showing as a little black object against the hot western sun. Now he got his shoulder and knee up, and again he seemed to slip back, until only his head was visible. Suddenly he vanished, and I could have fancied a faint shriek had reached me. I had a momentary impulse to go back and help him, that my fears overruled. Everything was then quite invisible, hidden by the deep pit and the heap of sand that the fall of the cylinder had made. Anyone coming along the road from Cobham or Woking would have been amazed at the sight. A dwindling multitude of perhaps a hundred people or more standing in a great irregular circle, in ditches, behind bushes, behind gates and hedges, saying little to one another, and that in short, excited shouts and staring, staring hard at a few heaps of sand. 
the barrow of ginger beer stood, a queer derelict, black against the burning sky. And in the sand pits was a row of deserted vehicles, with their horses feeding out of nosebags or pawing at the ground. And there you have chapter four, the cylinder opens. Thank you for joining me. I'm Bart Benny, your narrator and guide for H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Join me next time for chapter five. I wonder what it could be about the heat ray. We've seen a bunch of oily leather people coming from Mars with thick with tentacles crawling out. I wonder what we'll see next time. It didn't, in fact, turn out to be anything inside that cylinder except Martians. I wonder what the heat ray will be about. You'll have to join me next time. From Public Domain Playhouse, we'll see you in the next chapter.